Welcome to the Reformed Media Review. My name is Camden Busey. I'm here speaking with Carlton Wynn, who's a PhD candidate at Westminster Theological Seminary. We have an interesting book in front of us today we're going to be speaking about, In Defense of the Dissent, a Response to Contemporary Critics, and it's in the Explorations in Reformed Confessional Theology series from Reformation Heritage Books. It's written by Danny Hyde. Uh, tell us about this book, Carlton. Uh, what do we have well, I first came across this book offhandedly through an email from Westminster Bookstore. Didn't think much about it until in a small group uh, from my church, this question about what this clause from the Apostles' Creed means came up. Uh, as you mentioned, the title of this book is In Defense of the Dissent, mm-hmm. and it's referencing that clause in the Apostles' Creed where we confess that Christ died and was buried, and he descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. Uh, That clause has been the subject of confusion for many Christians. It's been the subject of controversy in church history. Um, Different theologians bring different interpretations uh, to the clause. So uh, Daniel Hyde wrote this book to provide some of the history of the clause. How did it come about in the Apostles' Creed? Uh, what are the various views that are out there, and how do we navigate them biblically? Uh, he opens this book. It's really tiny. Uh, before I get into it, it's only about 75 pages. And, and, and by tiny, I mean it's a tiny book. It's, uh, it's a small... <laughs> oh, a small <laughs> format, like height and width? Sm- right, right. Wow. So it's short and it's and it's small. Uh, it's so only five dollars. I see Reformation Heritage has it for five bucks right now. So you can visit heritagebooks.org. And yeah. uh, though it's small, it also has a small sticker price, too. <laughs> exactly. And I think it's the right size for, for a book on a clause. Um, Fair enough. Okay. So uh, he opens the book by talking about people who want to remove the clause, interestingly, including Michael Williams from Covenant Seminary. And uh, Wayne Grudem has an article uh, saying that we should not say the clause. Their rationale basically is that uh, the clause communicates that Christ descended into hell uh, after his death. Uh, That's not biblical, therefore we should not confess it. Um, Hyde goes on to articulate a different understanding of the clause, but before I get there, he lists six, count them, six different interpretations of the clause that he has come across. Within Reformed uh, circles or just broadly? Only the last broadly? two within okay. Reformed circles. First four uh, are uh, unbiblical. I can walk through them very quickly. <laughs> because if, if it's not Reformed, it's unbiblical. <laughs> I'm with you on the logic. I, I just... <laughs> it, but I'll agree with it. I'll agree with it. Okay. Uh, number one, uh, view number one, it means that Christ went to hell to suffer more than his suffering upon the cross. Yeah. View number two. It means that Christ went to hell to preach a second chance to those who died apart from him. First Peter 3. Right? Uh, view number three, it means that Christ went to hell and pronounced his victory to those who had believed in him before his advent. Hmm. View number four, it means that Christ went to hell and pronounced his victory to Satan. Those first four he dispenses with, uh, but he offers up two more, which is really where the debate lies within mm-hmm. the Reformed community. It means that Christ was buried, view number five. 
And view number six, it means that Christ suffered hell his whole life, especially on the cross. So the view that Christ was buried, that he actually entered into a state of death after his suffering on the cross, is expressed by Zwingli. It's in the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 50. Um, on the other hand, the view that Christ, that the clause should mean that, that Christ suffered hell uh, while he was on the cross, even though chronologically located out of order in the Apostles' Creed, that's a view that, for example, Calvin has held. Also, the Heidelberg Catechism, question 44, interprets the clause in that way. So after walking through those first four that I mentioned and dispensing with them using scripture texts, he finally gets to the final two views. He explains them. And then here's the kicker uh, that makes this book on the Descent Clause different from all the other many, many books on the Descent Clause. Um, I know of none. Uh, mm-hmm. But that he actually says we should take it both ways. Yeah. He says that uh, the two views concerning the clause are really two sides of one coin. And here is how he gets at his view. He says, it can be stated simply, as to the body of Jesus Christ, he descended into the state of death. But as to the soul of Jesus Christ, he suffered the agonies of hell. Westminster Confession affirms that most grievous torments in his soul so he thinks the way we get two sides of the same coin between the prevailing views in the reform community is that the state of death, the in the grave sense of the clause refers to the body of Jesus, affirming that he really and truly died. But the clause also has meaning for the soul of Jesus in his suffering of hell on the cross. Now, my quick response to that is I want to affirm both. I want to, I want to cherish both vital truths uh, as part of the meaning of Christ's death for sinners. But I'm not quite convinced that the same clause in the Apostles' Creed can be interpreted both ways simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Um, it's certainly true that Christ's descent into a state of death and, and place in the grave, as well as the grievous torments of his soul on the cross, refer to the complex of his climactic humiliation for sinners. But I'm just not convinced that the same clause, which seems to communicate a single truth, uh, can actually be bent in these two directions, even though I want to refer, uh, affirm both of them. Sure, sure. Um, but he gives a good uh, case. I think, frankly, he, he engages with uh, biblical texts uh, in terms of the use of the word sheol on the graveside, which is ultimately where I think I would come down. Um, he draws very helpfully on Psalm 16. Uh, he talks about different meanings of sheol or Hades. Um, he ends up disagreeing with Grudem and Williams because, uh, because of, the, of the variety of ways the Bible uses the term Hades. It doesn't have to mean uh, the place of eternal punishment, which is how they're taking it. He says, if you understand the flexibility of the word Hades in Scripture or Sheol, you can see that it refers 
to a state of death, literally to the grave, or to the place of eternal punishment. Uh, so he's obviously um, taking it as the state of death on the body side and the punishment um, while Christ suffered on the cross. Um, so he closes the book by saying we should keep it in. Uh, it gives us assurance. It links us to the to the Holy Catholic Church. It gives us hope in suffering and uh, gives us peace in the face of death, knowing that Jesus truly died uh, before he rose and he truly suffered the pains of hell uh, for his people. So um, I think it would be a helpful book for, for folks in the church who are confused. Yeah, um, There are undoubtedly members of our churches that recite the Apostles' Creed and really have no idea what they're, what they're saying sure. So uh, when it comes to this particular clause. So it provides some good clarity, and I think it's helpful. Um, you know, we were talking earlier, I think if I were in a church and we printed the Apostles' Creed in the bulletin, I think if I were king of the world, I'd want to put a footnote. Uh, explaining this clause. I'd want people to confess it, but I, I would want people to confess it intelligibly, and I'd want visitors to understand uh, what are we really saying here when we say that Christ descended into hell. Yeah, I think that's that's pretty wise. Um, two questions uh, on biblical text. You mentioned Psalm 16. Does he at all treat like Ephesians 4, 9, uh, just curious, or First Peter three nineteen through twenty one, I believe it is off the top of my head. Do those pop up in this book at all? You know the uh, the Ephesians passage. I'm not sure, but he does get into uh, the Peter passage. And yeah. Interestingly, he says here it is on page forty two. I'm not suggesting Ephesians four nine is definitely referring to the same thing that the Apostles' Creed is. However, I would imagine people in church history have linked the two. But it's the it's the verse that says, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? Um, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. So yeah. just for the listeners, in case they're wondering what that verse referred to, but the first Peter one is, is <laughs> a little more tricky. Yeah. Uh, that's when Christ uh, descends into you know, and, and preaches to the spirits who are in prison, and there's a bunch of debate about what that exactly means and who's doing the preaching and in what redemptive historical era. Is it Noah, etc.? Right. You know, looking at the book here, I said that the fourth view out of seven that he surveys is the so-called pronouncement of triumph to Mm -hmm. Satan view. And it's in that section that he does actually engage with Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter 3. He gives a helpful, you know, quick uh, explanation of Ephesians 4, arguing that the descent and ascent refers to his incarnation and his uh, ascent into heaven. Yeah, I think that's pretty clear from the context, but I think so. But but interestingly, this is what I want to tell you. First uh, Peter three, you know, I've always understood that as having reference to the Spirit of Christ speaking through Noah in his own day, right? Uh, the herald of righteousness, Spirit of Christ in him, proclaiming um, the truth of God in the face of unbelief. He actually draws on more recent New Testament uh, scholarship and argues, um, based on a particular interpretation of the Greek text, that it's actually referring to Christ proclaiming his victory in his ascension. So 
he doesn't think 1 Peter 3.19 refers to Christ's descent into the place of punishment to proclaim victory over Satan, though he does concede and believe that uh, in the Spirit, the Lord Jesus went not into the place of punishment, but, uh, but, but proclaimed his victory in his ascension. He went into heaven, and, and in the ascension uh, conveys his triumph over Satan. Mm-hmm. So he wants to tweak the proclamation over Satan verse, I mean, uh, interpretation of the clause. He doesn't think that's what the clause means, but he gives an interesting um, you know, twist on it as he looks at that text in 1 Peter 3.19. Well, interesting. Well, definitely yeah. uh, this is something people should take a look at. It might be handy to have on a church book table, if your church does that kind of thing, um, somebody might want to pick this up and read it. Uh, but if you've ever been curious or had questions about the Apostles' Creed and what it means for Christ to have descended into hell, and this is a book for you, In Defense of the Descent, A Response to Contemporary Critics, uh, written by Daniel Hyde, published by Reformation Heritage Books. Again, it's $5 currently at heritagebooks.org. Thanks for joining us, Carlton, and thanks for everybody for listening, and we hope you listen again. This has been the Reformed Media Review.